Hello, Parkview. This is Pastor Thomas Hoke. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Parkview Groups podcast. This episode is for the week of April 10th through 16th. My goal each week is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make whole disciples of Jesus. This week, we're learning from Acts 27, verses 1 through 44. That's the whole chapter. And in this week's training segment, at the end, uh, we're going to do a little disciple-making case study regarding group members who attend other churches. So if uh, that's your case or you... Well, I think it'll be helpful for everyone because I think many group leaders have dealt with this. Remember, community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. That's how we help Parkview take a step forward. Let's talk about what's going on around Parkview this week. All right. A couple of things to inform you about around Parkview. Uh, first of all, we have elder budget forums on April 23rd and 30th at 2 p.m. Uh, at Central Campus. So uh, this is a time where Parkview members or attenders can come and ask questions about the budget. So uh, our job as staff members and uh, as well, the elders put together a, a budget saying, here's how much we think we're going to take in through offering this year. And here's how we plan to use that money in the coming year. And so this is one of your chances. If you are a member, uh, this is something you're going to vote on. If you're an attender, this is something you're free to ask questions about. Um, but one of the ways that you can guide the way that the ministry of Parkview works and kind of get a behind the scenes look. So uh, that's April 23rd and 30th at 2 p.m. in the atrium at Central Campus. Uh, that initial proposal is going to be released to you sometime in the coming week. And so those forums will be an opportunity to ask questions about those things. Secondly, the Faith Academy Banquet is coming up. So Faith Academy is not uh not exactly a Parkview ministry or anything, but it's something that we really care a lot about. Uh, and so Faith Academy Banquet, that's happening at April 27th at 7 p.m. Uh, so we're going to celebrate God's faithfulness for 10 years of Faith Academy, which is just awesome. Praise the Lord for that. Doors will open at 6.15, and there will be desserts and appetizers this year. Uh, so a little bit of a, uh, a change, and it will happen a little bit later because of that. But the program will start at 7 and end by 8. And so you can check out the notes for both of those items in the episode notes below. But let's move on to our passage. All right. Well, uh Let's get a big picture of the passage. Navigating a speed bumps that could disrupt discussion and give a couple of places to land in application as we take a look at Acts 27. We are one week from the end of Acts. So this week, chapter 27. Next week, all of chapter 28. And then we're going to be moving on to a series where we will focus on our definition of a whole disciple. So I'm really excited about that. But uh, let's talk about this passage, Acts 27. So remember, um, in the final part of Acts 26, Paul has presented his case before King Agrippa and Festus. Uh, this was sort of our Easter passage where he says, you know, I is why should it be thought craziness to you uh, that God should raise the dead? And um, Agrippa says, you know, there's no reason this man couldn't be released. He's clearly innocent. And yet because he has appealed to Caesar, he must go to Caesar. And so that's where we're picking up. Chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. 
and embarking on a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Uh, so a couple things to notice right off the bat. So Paul is now going to be transported by the Roman centurion along with his, his group of uh, soldiers. They're going to transport him. In addition to some other prisoners, it says delivered Paul and some other prisoners um, all the way to Rome. And so we find out later that these other prisoners, you know, there's very few reasons that prisoners would be transported to Rome. One of them is Paul's case, which was very rare, which is where a, a Roman citizen is being taken to Rome to because they, that Roman citizen has appealed to uh, Caesar to hear his case. The other reason is because the Roman, or not the Roman citizen, but the whoever it is, the prisoner, has been condemned to death. And uh, in in that case, one of the one thing that might happen to them, depending on what what they're found guilty of, is that they would be taken to the the Roman games and they would be you know put in the gladiatorial uh, festival and all that kind of thing. So there's a good chance that those who are being uh, taken there with Paul, their capital prisoners, we find out later when the the soldiers are going to kill them. Um, more on that in a second. But uh, anyway, so they're going to go on a ship, and this was this was the typical way this was done. There were not sort of Roman prisoner ships or something like that, but they would just find a ride. They would hitch a ride. They would sort of requisition it with the power they had as as the Romans, and they would say, you know, we're going to join you on this ship. You have to let us. <laughs> and so, uh, but we noticed right away that Julius, who is who is the guy supervising this whole thing from Rome, treats Paul kindly, gives him leave to go to his friends when they they uh, they stop at Sidon. Apparently there's a church there probably formed from the persecution that um, scattered the Jewish people after Stephen was killed, which is greatly ironic that Paul is going to be cared for um, by the people who fled because of the persecution and murder of Saul or of uh, Stephen, which Paul spurred on. Um, so just a fun, another funny detail in the providence of God. But, um, but Paul also gets to have traveling companions. It's weird. It's weird that Luke... You notice how it says we throughout this passage. Luke is clearly there. And Aristarchus, uh, this Macedonian from Thessalonica. And by the way, Thessal if you read the book of Thessalonians, or the two letters that Paul wrote, he clearly just has so much heartfelt love for these people. Aristarchus apparently joined in too. So Paul gets to travel um, with those with his traveling mates. Not He doesn't have to be alone on his way to Rome, where he's going to be, you know, this big trial with, with Caesar and all that. And he gets we'll see many other ways that he's cared for along the way. So um, look at verse four and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. This is the first of so many details about sea travel. You're going to learn so much today. Okay. About sails and gear and winds and just buckle up. Okay. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and in Lycia there, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So again, this is this is how it would work. Um, they they would find a ship, and this is really how almost all sort of private, so to speak, travel happened throughout the empire. There weren't there weren't many ships that just carried people. 
that was not typical. But there was plenty of ships that were involved in industry. They were moving often uh, wheat and um, agricultural products, stuff like that, um, for the empire, things that needed to get places. And in addition, they would make extra money by transporting people um, for a fee. It turns out that this is actually a massive ship that they end up getting on from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Um, some 276 people on board, plus a bunch of cargo. We find out they're carrying wheat, which was typical for that time. Uh, Rome needed wheat, the city of Rome. And obviously, if you're in a city, there's not a lot of farmland. So they imported a huge amount of their wheat. And uh, I've discovered that a full two-thirds of the grain that was needed in Rome was imported from Egypt. So this was a really common thing. Um, so it says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. So let's pause there for a moment. So Paul uh, is, stands up and points out that this is a problem. Um, it's a, it says there in verse 9, much time had passed, meaning uh, this, this initial journey of this ship leaving from Alexandria to get all the way to Rome, uh, that, that initial journey went really slowly. And so the, the window for them to be able to make this journey before the bad weather that would come in the winter, that, that window is closing rapidly. And so Paul, this is not a revelation from the Lord or anything, but Paul just as a, a well-traveled man, uh, says, this is a bad idea. Um, you see, he notes that, you know, the fast is already over. That's referring to the day of atonement which on that year would have been October 5th. So we can kind of, we can date roughly about when this was happening. And indeed, kind of all the ancient sailing records that we have from that time would say no one, no one would set sail at this time. This was, this was a bad time to, to hit the, the waters until this, till the spring came because the weather turned so ugly. And so um, Paul's, Paul's prediction here turns out to be right. And that'll become significant in a moment. Verse 11, but the centurion paid uh, more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And so initially, Paul is, even though he's been treated kindly by the centurion, he's not, they, they don't listen to him. Um, the pilot is is a hired uh, seafarer, a captain. Um, their job is to oversee the crew to, to get the boat where it needs to go. The owner, depending on, we're, we're not totally sure whether this is a Roman ship or if it's a, basically a hired kind of contracted vessel, that was moving this wheat because around this time there was a transition from um, just contracted vessels to sort of that were insured by Rome to actually Rome having its own fleet of, of grain vessels to insure that supply. Um, and so in that, depending on what that means um, and what, where, where that transition happened, we're not totally sure. Uh, basically this person was in charge finally of making sure the, the product got to its destination. Um, and it turns out, you know, of course, they would be motivated by financial interest, both, both of them, because they wouldn't be paid and they wouldn't be cared for unless they, they got the stuff where it needed to go in the time that it was needing to get there. Um, they don't don't have a bunch of wheat just sitting in a harbor somewhere. Um, but anyway, they don't listen to Paul. <laughs> um, it, and it seems like the, Luke's, um, Luke's implication is that it's financially motivated. Um, 
So continuing on, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So they realized that, um, you know, they, they pull into this spot called Fair Havens near La Silla, and they, they have some kind of group meeting here. Paul gives his advice. They say, we don't care. We're going we're gonna to move on. And they say, why don't we try to make it to Phoenix? That, a name that sounds very familiar, right? You think of Arizona. We have a city named after it. Um, now, this, this journey to Phoenix was only 40 miles. It was not a long journey. Um, compared to the journey they'd already undertaken. Um, but it would, wasn't really a safe journey. If you can imagine, uh, if you can, I know this is a, not the right medium for explaining things visually, but the, the, the whole sort of Adriatic Sea and the, the, they needed to get from Israel, which was sort of on the bottom right uh, in a sort of, if you can imagine it of, as sort of uh, you're looking at a football field from above, kind of from the long side. They're in the bottom right, and they need to get basically to the top left. Um, so they need to go west a long ways and, a, and north. Um, 40 miles is kind of a blip on that journey. It's a, it's a huge, long journey. They're not going to get there for months. Um, listen to how this 40-mile journey goes. <laughs> now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So that means, you know, in sailing, you need to cooperate with the winds to get where you're going. They're not rowing or something. And the wind is not cooperating. And so it's to the point where uh, they're being driven by the wind rather than sort of riding the wind as you hope to as you sail. This is not going well. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat that is the lifeboat, the small boat that they would t- they would use uh, to anchor offshore and then go to land. Um, and probably this thing was full of water at this point. It was not an easy task, they, they, but they secure it. After hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. Undergirding a ship, we know from historical records, involved taking cables or heavy ropes and tying them underneath the hull, which was a pretty significant process when you were in the midst of a storm. Um, and the point of that was to basically keep the timber hole from disintegrating under the storm conditions. Um, and they would put ropes in both directions to try to just hold the ship together. Um, then, fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, uh, uh, sorry, the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And when it says the gear there, um, that would mean the sails. And so they would have one small storm sail that would basically kind of balance the ship, um, keep it from turning over. But otherwise, they, they lowered all the mainsail, everything. They realized that they were, they were not in any condition to try to sail, and they just needed to weather the storm, basically. So thus, they were driven along. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And so they would, they would throw stuff overboard to lighten the load of the ship so that it would sit higher in the water, and so that when waves came, they wouldn't crash over the bow and into, um, into the ship and need to be bailed out. Um, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, where tackle literally just means equipment, and what what is presented to us is that they're so concerned that they're they're throwing over even the things that are they're valuable, right? Um, but they're throwing them overboard. And it says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, 
all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And you, you know, he, he says sun or stars, they didn't come, you know, that's, that's talking about their means of navigation because of course they, there's no GPS in those days, nothing like that. Um, and so the sun and the stars were their means of navigating, of knowing where they were and therefore where they needed to go. We'll find out later they are being driven directly west, which is exactly where they needed to go. And yet the situation is still dire and they are, they are without hope of navigation. They are still in a storm. So see how Luke says no small tempest. He has that habit of saying, you know, they, they had no, they took no little encouragement from Paul's miracles. <laughs> you know, he says the opposite, right? He's saying no small tempest. So basically a gigantic tempest was still upon us and all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. So they're, they're kind of at the lowest of the low but things actually do get worse. So verse 21, uh, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and have not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, you might think that's a funny way to start a speech. Is he just kind of rubbing their noses on it? In it, no. Um, rather, it seems that, uh, and this was sort of a typical ancient way of speaking, that the first thing you did was establish your credibility and so this is basically Paul's way of saying, remember, if you had done what I had said, we would have been, we would have been safe. Therefore, you should listen to my advice now. So it's him establishing his credibility. It says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. By the way, a very interesting phrase, God has granted you all those who sail with you. It seems to imply that Paul has been praying for them and, and God has granted them, granted their lives that they will live. He says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island, which of course is exactly what happens. So Paul gives a speech and it's, it's very significant. I urge you to sort of zoom in on Paul's um Speaking, it's, it plays a huge role in this and kind of the increasing favor that he has and people listening to him, even as he's a prisoner on this vessel. Um, but when the 14th night has come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they, that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. A fathom, by the way, is about six feet. So looks like we're getting close to shore. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they let down their anchors, hoping that the ship will slow down and not bash into the rocks, but maybe have a little slow, steady bonk. Um, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, again, listen in, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, what, what's happening here is they're, they're letting down the lifeboat under the pretense, he says, of laying out the anchors from the bow, um, but in fact, they're trying to escape and leave the rest of the people to die. <laughs> and so Paul says, unless those men stay, you can't be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go, which, by the way, is a pretty radical thing to do. Um, <laughs> it's literally the lifeboat. There's one, um, and they just cut it away because of what Paul said. So you see Paul's influence increasing to grow increasing and growing because he's been proven to be right. 
And as about uh, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And again, we're, we're recalling to mind the similarities between Jesus and Paul and their journeys and their life, lives. Um, basically, what Paul is saying what is have faith, right? Have faith. And we're reminded of Matthew 10, uh, which is where Jesus says this very thing, um, where he says, you know, why do you worry about what you eat and what you wear? Uh, don't you know you're, uh, the sparrows are cared for by the Lord? And don't you know you're worth more than many sparrows? And then his conclusion is, even the hairs of your head are numbered. The Lord knows every single hair on your head. Um, and you remember Jesus, of course, when the disciples were freaking out about the storms, right? And he was asleep on the cushion, apparently because he had such confidence and <laughs> he was sleeping in the storm. Um, and he said to them, why have you so little faith when he rebuked the wind and the seas? And so, uh, again, we're sort of being presented Paul as not, he's not Jesus, Okay, and yet it seems as if we're meant to see Paul is a faithful, a whole disciple, to use our language, who's encountering what we should expect every Christian will encounter, trials, a tempest, you know, the storms of life, and the way that he responds to them actually gains him a hearing and gains him influence with the people around him, and he, he is, is clearly taking his lead from Jesus. And yet we, here we have still 15 verses to go, so buckle up, almost done. And when he had said these things, he took bread, that is Paul, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Uh, And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they've they've finally abandoned their their desire for commercial gain from this trip. There's going to be no no payment for what, what they are going through here. And again, we have to notice there's another clear parallel between sort of the ministry of Jesus and Paul here. Uh, of course, this is not being implied that this is a miracle that takes place. And yet there's there's a clear similarity in uh, him encouraging them to eat, to take food. Um, of course, there would have been a temptation to keep the wheat, to keep it further, to keep it longer. Um, but because of Paul's encouragement and example, um, they... They go ahead and eat. Then that's the moment where Luke decides to share how many people were on the ship. It's kind of a funny place to mention it, isn't it? And it, it very much echoes the times when Jesus fed the crowds. And then Luke would say, you know, and there were 5,000 men, you know, uh, not counting women and children, that kind of thing. So, and it's a huge ship. So it's anyway, verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Um, we actually know from historical records that uh, this, this island, which we learn is called Malta, um, was surrounded by a by a reef. And also this, this sort of weird muddy kind of clay substance that also had rocks embedded in it and was known for this exact thing. So we have good historical records that would show us this is exactly what we expect to happen uh, at the spot. So notorious for bows getting stuck and then the surf just busting apart the ships because they couldn't move. Um, so the bow stucks, 
or sticks and uh, the, the, the whole ship is being destroyed uh, as they sit there. Just as Paul said, verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. Um, and this was, of course, we know from earlier in Acts, this was typical of soldiers. Um, if they're entrusted with guarding a prisoner, um, the way that they kept them honest and kept them doing their job well was that if they let the, uh, the prisoner escape, then the guard would suffer the consequence. Basically, they would take their place, right? They would suffer what what the the wages of their sin, <laughs> of the prisoner's uh, sin had had uh, deserved. And so if they let a capital prisoner, a, a prisoner who deserved death go free, then they would have to take their place and die. Um, and so the soldiers decide, well, we might as well kill the prisoners because they're going to go get killed in, in Rome anyway. Um, and that would save us the, the fate of being killed. Um, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it is that they were all brought safely to land. Okay, a good long passage and plenty to discuss. And um, let me give you one big idea and a couple points to think about as you prepare to discuss this with your groups this week. First, we see again Paul's vindication through trials. Paul is vindicated through his trials. Um, and yes, this is wordplay, uh, because on the one hand, we have seen many times Paul being vindicated through his legal trials, right? Uh, he's come before Roman governors and Jewish kings and and uh, and centurions and so forth and, and the Jewish councils and all of that. And in every case, he's been vindicated. Um, and now he's going through another trial, a different kind of trial, a sea trial. And again, he's been vindicated. It's been made clear that God was at work providing and protecting him. Um, now, it's not typical for us, but it would have been typical for many ancient people, and it probably should be a little more typical of us, um, that, but especially it was for ancient people, that they would see Paul's, the outcome of this situation and of someone's kind of life in general as somehow indicative of their moral character and of God's sort of favor upon that person. You see this throughout the Bible. Um, I mean, one, one point where you see this is when the disciples are... Um, walking with Jesus and they see a man who had been uh, born blind. Maybe you remember this. And they asked Jesus, you know, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his father? Um, and Jesus says, uh, this was for the glory of God. And so he, Jesus has a, a little different take on that. And yet he doesn't sort of disavow the question. Um, and so ancient people very much saw, you know, people's personal destiny as reflective of their moral character. And so, that's especially why Jesus being crucified was such an offense to so many people, especially Jewish people, because they said, look, this, this man was not blessed by God. He was not beloved by God as the Messiah, the chosen one would be. Doesn't being chosen mean being favored, being loved, being protected? Um, and so the fact that, that Paul weathers all of these storms and that God protects him and in spite of it, even to the last moment when he was about to be killed by the, the guards, right? Would, have de would demonstrate to us and to Luke's readers and to those who are involved, we see more of this later on Malta when they meet the natives and Paul survives a snake attack, um, but that, that Paul's character was sound and that he was innocent and that he, he, he was following Christ with all that he was doing. Um, so that's, that's a, a point we need to kind of absorb. Um, and I would, I would suggest two more things, uh, that we see in Paul that persisting in the face of trials gives credibility 
vindicates our message. Uh, when we are faithful for Christ in difficult circumstances, whether it's difficult because we are Christians um, and we're treated poorly, whatever it happens to be, um, or just because of the commitments that we've made to Christ and we're not able to to sort of deal with our, the difficulties of life in ways that others might be able to, um, that vindicates the gospel message. Uh, we think, too, of of just the, the kinds of difficulties that every person faces, um, and there are deep tragedies in this life. Um, but when we persist and, and uh, faithfully in those, not and I'm not saying, you know, perfectly or without sorrow or anything like that. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, but when we persist in them faithfully, continuing to trust the Lord, even when it's really hard, that vindicates the credibility of, of the gospel message. Um, and so I hope that encourages you, by the way. Um, and secondly, again, this is something we just need to hear again and again. And I think it is one of the main things that Luke wants his, us as his readers to hear and God wants us to hear is that God will absolutely take care of his people and his purposes, even when it means going through a dark storm, a dark valley. He is leading us into green pastures and still waters for your soul. Um, so wonderful passage. Hope it leads to some rich discussion. Uh, let's move on now to our training segment. So leaders buckle up and those who are curious, join in. All right. Uh, for our training segment this week, I wanted to do a little disciple making case study uh, of an issue that I, I know several people are probably going to listen to this and go, oh, Thomas, you're talking about our group. And I'm not. So don't don't hear that. This is an issue that I think that I have faced in my own groups that I have led at different times um, over the over the years, uh, and of course has has come up in other groups. It's just a persistent issue, so it's it's worth talking about. But don't think I'm talking about your group, okay? Um, so let me read it. Ben has been part of your group for about four months and seems to be a very consistent attender. You invited Ben to your group during an interaction you had with him after the Sunday worship service. So you met Ben at church, said, why don't you come, come to our group, and Ben came. And he's been coming consistently since then. However, in the past month or so, you have not seen Ben at a church worship service, and he seems less familiar with the sermon passage than before. You mentioned to Ben that you haven't seen him on Sundays and that you'd love to sit together to worship sometime. Ben replies that he actually has been... In uh, attending a different church, I made up a church name, Liberty Church, in a neighboring town, and that he really appreciates their worship and feels better about the preaching there. Okay, first of all, ouch! Just kidding. <laughs> um, but how how would we handle this? How would you how would you sort of address this? Now, um, first, let me just kind of say right off the bat, this is not a red flag. Uh, stop everything need to address this immediately sort of issue. It just isn't. Um, over time, this is going to be a problem. And I, you know, I think many group leaders have experienced that, you know, that if you don't address it, then it can become more widespread because you're kind of communicating that that's a normal thing to do. Um, but so it is something you need to address, but it's not a red light issue. I also just want to emphasize, you know, the, the point here is not to sort of emphasize that we are a Parkview only thing and that we don't want to bless other people or other churches around us. That is, that's not the case. But at the same time, we have to say it's really best for people to have community where they're worshiping. Um, and that, so if, if our goal is to help each group member take the next step with Christ, then Ben needs to, in this case, Ben needs to find community where he's worshiping 
and vice versa, find and worship where he has community. Um, it's not going to be a healthy, helpful, spiritual thing for him in the long term to have one set of friends that he does community with and then a different community where he worships. Um, or another way to say it is it, it doesn't make sense to have in one realm of teaching authority where you're sitting under the, the authority of one group of teachers at one church and then to have sort of the communal authority and accountability in a totally different place. When those two places might have different views on things, uh, there's not going to be sort of continuity of care for him. You know, there's no way that you can really do mission together if you have churches with different mission statements in different areas, addressing different needs. It's it's just it's just not good for Ben. Okay, so don't hear, again, don't hear this as me saying you need to prioritize only the health of your group, so get Ben out of there or anything like that. We want what's best for Ben. But what's best for Ben is to have community where he worships. Um, and it, if I'm honest, I think I do at times feel as a group leader, like, you know, maybe a little used <laughs> in these moments, like, like you, like, like someone kind of wants community sort of as an a la carte option, you know, that I like this, it's sort of a buffet, you know, I like this church's outreach ministry. So I'm going to do that. I like this church's music and preaching. So I'm going to do that. And then I like these, this church's community. So I'm going to go do that. It just strikes me as a very individualistic approach to Christianity, just to be honest. Uh, so anyway, for all those reasons, it's something that that should be addressed. It's also because groups are, community groups are not just sort of friendship circles, you know. Our groups, and every church would say this, are there to, to carry out and help the church take steps forward in the mission of that church. Um, and so to sort of say, I'm here to, to experience the friendship and encouragement of this group, but not to go with you where this group is going is it just doesn't, doesn't really make much sense anyway. So hopefully, hopefully I've given you enough reasons why you'd say, uh, yeah, this, this is actually a problem. Cause I know at times you, you group leaders, you just love people and that's why you're group leaders. So that's, I love that. And it's wonderful, but at the same time it can be, it can make it hard to, to make some of these hard calls and say, you know, Ben, I just got to recommend this, this not continue, you know, because it can feel like, and this is a good place where we can get into how would you actually respond here. Um, it can feel like what you're communicating to them is, hey, I'm going to break up with you as a friend because you aren't doing what our group wants you to do, you know, or something like that. And you want to avoid that. So right off the bat, let me mention a first, first kind of a couple things that I think you can do to avoid getting into this situation in the first place. Um, meaning, how can I... How can I cultivate an environment in my group that emphasizes belonging to our church rather than it just kind of being a friendship group? Um, and the first one, and this is where I, again, remember this is not just about us being Parkview-centered, everything, only blessing us, but um, just some things to keep in mind. First would be to just use Parkview, the Parkview content that we create. So if you're, if you're using you know, our sermons, using, you know, the, the questions that we write for you and that kind of thing. Um, directing people to Parkview Groups podcast, uh, getting people hooked up to the Church Center app, right, which is, which is really helpful. And that's how we communicate with group members about how the sessions are working and what we're doing and all that kind of stuff. Then it's, it's, it's going to make it a lot clearer that your group is, is part of a certain church. And I'd just say, yeah, just embrace being a Parkview group. 
use our language, you know, talk about our mission statement, use it, um, that we're trying to cultivate relational safety, uh, where the institutional initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. Emphasize that, say, that's what we're here for. We're trying to help each other take the next step with Christ. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's maybe just one, one suggestion to, to just continue in that. Um, now, as far as how to address this personally with Ben, okay, first of all, you got to find the right moment. And just as a principle for everyone, no matter what issue you're dealing with, um, something that's going to be hard for someone to hear, bad news, um, challenge, critique, or in this case, I think just kind of a, maybe just a hard thing to hear, that should come in person. If at all possible, it should come in person, privately. If that's not possible, it should come uh, over the phone and not, you know, not a voicemail, but a phone call. Um, and sometimes that's possible, you know, during a group meeting, that kind of thing. And um, But, you know, I just urge you, here, a good principle is if you have good news, you have encouragement, you have words of honor to share with someone, write that down, email it, whatever, give it, put it in a durable form so that people can revisit and be re-encouraged by what you say to them. Um, if you have discouragement, I, I want that thing to have its effect for the moment that it needs to have its effect. And then I don't really want them to think about it ever again. Um, because I don't want them to dwell on discouragement. I want them to dwell on encouragement. Discouragement has to come at times and it has to have its effect, but I want them to dwell on um, just the encouragement that we have for them. Anyway, um, so find the right moment, first of all. And second, uh, and not finally, but second, I would emphasize that it's not a situation where we're sort of breaking up, but rather to, to phrase it as, you know, how can I help you make this transition as well as possible, Right. And I, it's helpful, I think, to just kind of assume that they're at the same place as you as far as the things I've discussed previously about the need to kind of worship where you have community and vice versa. Um, and so, I, you know, a question I've asked in the circumstances, hey, I know you mentioned you're going to Liberty Church, whatever. Uh, cool. You know, support you in that. No hard feelings about that at all. Um, how has it gone as you've kind of started to develop community there have you checked out the groups you know have you have you started to kind of commit to one of those groups over there because i know that's you know what they're going to want from you <laughs> um and just kind of put the ball in their court um and I, I think that's a good question to ask you know i want to make sure that that transition to their community goes smoothly you know how how can i help you make that happen you know what what needs to happen for that to to take take uh, take effect um and then, you know, from there, you're probably going to have to see how they respond. Now, some people, um, it's just going to be really hard for them. And I think, I think I would just come back to saying, you know, just some of those things I mentioned before that it seems like it'd be important for you to have community where you have, uh, where you worship and, you know, have that be an integrated thing for you rather than having like friends over here, but then worship over here. Um, it just doesn't seem like it's good for you, you know? Um, so the, and just say, that's where my heart's at and all this is wanting the best thing for you. And it doesn't seem like that's what's best. Um, you know, you can't really submit to the authority of one church's community group and to a different church's teaching. It, it just doesn't. So I would, if someone said, you know, has resistance to that, I'd mention maybe a couple things like that. But again, I would always mention it in the tone of, I want to help you here. I want to help 
help this go well. I would also probably not say, I would not give them an ultimatum necessarily and say, hey, so you need to leave like now <laughs> or you better leave by the end of April. But I might say if might say something like, you know, I'm, I'm going to check back in with you in a couple of weeks and, and we can talk about this more if it doesn't seem like that first attempt to bring it up is, is sort of fruitful. Um, and so, and you know, there are other things you can do in the meantime, you know, if you, if they mention the church they're going to whatever Liberty church I made up, you know, to, to look up their group stuff. Um, you know, every church has a website, look up how their groups work and send them an email and say, Hey, I looked into this a little bit. That looks like their group stuff works really well. You know, I, I really respect X, Y, Z and just say, Hey, you know, just wanted to remind you about, you know, and just kind of, just kind of tip them, tip them off that that's, that's where you'd encourage them to move toward, um, again, in the, in the name of helping them grow. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful. Again, I know this can be sort of a delicate issue because you don't want to communicate the wrong thing to them or make them feel like they're being kicked out. Um, but again, I think when, when people see that it's going to be best for them to live kind of an integrated worship life, um, with the people that they're worshiping, also being the people they're in community with, in accountability to, and so forth, um, then I think they, they'll see that that's the right thing. Now, of course, I hope above and suffused in all of this is prayer um, for them to, to continue to grow and for you to be able to speak winsomely and kindly um, and to not, that they would uh, hear you well and hear you rightly and not hear what you're not saying and so forth. So um, I hope that's helpful. And, uh, I hope if that comes up in your group and it often does that you feel like, you know how it might move forward. Of course, if you have questions about this, I hope you never would hesitate to reach out to me and ask how, um, how to help, how I can help with that. So with that said, let me send you out with prayer. Heavenly father, we thank you for another week of ministry. We thank you for the resurrection. Pray that that would not, uh, just kind of float away in our people's minds. We pray that the resurrection would become a source of living hope, for our people. And as we continue in the book of Acts and meditate on Paul's journeys, his trials uh, through this sea journey, that you would help our people, each member, Lord, perhaps bring some of them to mind even now, to grow in their understanding of your providential protection and care for them. Help them to grow in facing trials with confidence in you. Help us uh, to help lead that discussion with faithfulness to your word and great awareness of what your people need and help us to encourage them toward you. Please do all this, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. All right, been fun. I will catch up with you again next week and uh, well, have a great week.